Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. And visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our worship pastor, Riley Monzo. Hey church, thanks for joining us today for our Tuesday night church service. Uh, my name is Riley and I have the blessing and privilege of getting to cover the, the table, the pulpit, uh, for Pastor Nate today in uh, this Tuesday night series that we're going through, through Leviticus. I am not teaching through Leviticus today, but after talking to Pastor Nate, uh, we decided that it might be kind of cool to jump out of Leviticus for a moment and study another portion of Scripture that has to do with what we're studying through the book of Leviticus. If you've been following along for the past few weeks, you know that Pastor Nate has been taking us through the Old Testament law that's found in that old book of Leviticus. And what you see in that book is that there's a lot of laws that are given from God to his people. Um, but what you see happen is that there's a lot of people who receive these laws and rather than um, living them out from a place of gratitude that they get to have some kind of connection with God, oftentimes what happens is that these laws, these rules, uh, become rigid and just feel lifeless. And so the people of Israel began to feel that with these different laws. Um, but today, we're jumping into the book of Psalms to see a prayer from a man who was under these same laws, who offered these same sacrifices, practiced the same uh, religious kind of set of principles that the people of Israel participated in. But rather than feeling rigid and lifeless, when, uh, when living into these practices, he felt a sense of connection with God. And what we'll see here is that there's a sincere brokenness inside the heart of this man that we're about to look at. And his confession towards sin is um, so honest and so vulnerable. And I really feel like it's really refreshing in our day and age. In a time where we're oftentimes glorifying sin or when sin is um, kind of pushed aside and is relabeled as liberty or choice or my own truth. It's just so helpful to look at scripture and see um, what brokenness truly looks like. And not just brokenness, but this sense of vulnerability that really connects us to the heart of God. So we're in the book of Psalms today, and we're in Psalms 51. If you have your Bible with you, you can open that up. Uh, but this psalm is from King David. And this psalm is essentially just a big prayer from David to God. And the psalm comes at a really specific time in David's life. Uh, a lot of the psalms are, you know, spawned or, or kind of birthed from a moment in David's life. Uh, he was a poet. He was a creative. And so he oftentimes would reflect on what had happened in his life and would write these psalms. And Psalm 51 was written right after David had committed one of the greatest sins of his life. I actually feel bad for him that's recorded in scripture, but David had a moment where he gave into his lust. And you might be familiar with the story of David and Bathsheba and her husband Uriah. And I want to go into it just for a brief moment because this story really sets up the stage for this psalm and shows us why David's heart was really broken in the first place. So let's rewind the tape a little bit and look at what David did to prompt him to have this prayer. David was a king. David had wives, plural. He had children. He had a kingdom. He oversaw the people of Israel. He was in the highest place of honor and privilege, and he oversaw everything that happened in Israel. He had everything that somebody could ever want. But one day he decided he was going to stay back at home while the rest of his people went out to battle. And during that day, he encountered a moment of intense temptation because David took a stroll uh, around his house. And as he was on this stroll, he saw on the roof of another house, a woman bathing. Her name was Bathsheba. He didn't know who she was but he had an eye for her. So he had someone go find her, bring her back to his palace, and he slept with her. He soon realized that 
she was pregnant. She had told him that uh, she was pregnant. And upon learning that, found out that uh, this was Uriah's wife. Now, Uriah was one of David's mighty men. This is one of the key people uh, in David's army. And as David found out that this was all taking place, that he had slept with Uriah's wife, and that Uriah's wife was now pregnant, David had some decisions to make. And his first decision, out of the wisdom of his heart, was to bring in Uriah and to tell him, hey, go back home and have some intimate time with your wife. And I think that his thinking was that if Uriah had some time with Bathsheba, that this pregnancy might look like it was from Uriah. Uriah has nothing to do with it and says, hey, I'm going to actually stay with the people who are going to war. It's not right for me to leave these people while they're on the front lines fighting these battles. And so Uriah, an honorable man, decides he's going to stay with the army. And David is perplexed, doesn't really know what to do. And as the story goes, David takes his decisions to another extreme and calls for Uriah to go to the front lines of battle. Basically, all that means is that David was signing the death wish or the death warrant for Uriah because anyone who went on the front lines was sure to die. And so Uriah does. He's honorable. He goes to the front lines and he dies. So here's where David's at right now. David has this mistress, Bathsheba. She's pregnant with his baby. David also just sent a man out to be killed essentially hiring a hitman for all intents and purposes. So he is dealing with adultery and murder on his hands. A lot going on in his mind. He's ruling the kingdom at the same time. And, and in David's mind, he's just trying to work through all these different problems that he has going on. But the moment where everything hits the fan is when the prophet Nathan comes to David. Now Nathan was a prophet. He was a man who would bring God's word to people. In this moment, he brings God's word to David. And through this beautiful word picture, he shows David that David is in the wrong, that his sins are known by God, and that he cannot escape the weight of what he has just done. There's some consequences to uh, the sin that David um, you know, participated in, but we won't get into all that. Right now, what I want us just to see is that this psalm, Psalm 51 was written just after Nathan had confronted David about his sin. So David is in a very emotionally and mentally vulnerable place. He has committed these sins that are piling on top of each other. He's been confronted by a prophet. He has nowhere to run from his sin. God sees it all. Nathan has seen it all. And now David is left to pick up the pieces. And Maybe another man, another kind of man, would have had these same situations happen to him, and he would have just ran away, uh, just out of fear or self-preservation. But what David does is really impressive because he takes this moment to write a psalm confessing his sins. And so the title for this message today is Prayers of Confession. And maybe another subtitle could be Eight Components to Confessional Prayer. And my hope for us today is as we jump into Psalm 51 is that we would see and may glean some different kind of practices for us as we practice confessional type of prayer in our own lives. And I recognize, you know, that confessional prayer isn't something that we do really often or talk about all that often. Maybe we talk about confessing your sins to God, just kind of just recognizing what you did wrong and just presenting it to God. That stuff is good. We have to do that daily um, to recognize God's goodness and our wretchedness and be able to, to humble ourselves before God. But what we'll see here is that David builds out a whole prayer that is repentant in nature, that is confessional, that recognizes God's sovereignty, God's goodness, His mercy, His purity and His holiness. And it's just a really dynamic prayer that, um, you know, as I've been studying it, I've been thinking, man, I need to incorporate some of this language, some of these kind of mindsets into my prayer as I'm confessing to God my sins. And I'm hoping that today your heart is edified by this prayer and that you're maybe prompted to go deeper into your confessional prayer with God 
yourself. This psalm is uh, 18 verses long, so I'm not going to read the whole thing to you, but what I do want to do is I want to pray, and then we're going to take some time just to break down verse by verse what's going on. We'll, we'll couple some verses together to um, not draw it out too long, but let me just pray for you and for our time in the Word briefly. Father, we are so thankful for your Word and thankful, God, that you see us and still want to love us. We recognize, God, that we go through different stages of giving into sin and that we need to repent daily and regularly, but oftentimes, I know for myself, I don't always have the language for that. I don't always know how to do it, but I just know I want to get things off my chest and before you. And so I'm praying for my brothers and sisters today who are joining in this message, and may they're feeling the same thing that I'm feeling. I just pray, God, that by your Spirit, you'd reveal to them how we can continually engage in prayer, not just for our benefit, but for your glory. That we go deeper into intimacy with you and honor you with every element of our lives, our decisions, and our mindsets. So, God, we love you right now, and we ask that you would speak, because we need to hear. In your name, amen. Amen. So, like I said, this passage has about 18 verses. I'm not going to... Um, talk too much right now. I just want to jump right into verse 1. Let's check this out and see what it says. David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Here's the first point I want you to see, is that prayers of confession remember God's character and God's nature. What we see here is that David he has a couple different pleas before God. He says, have mercy on me and blot out my transgressions. But he couches those requests in affirming who God is. And I don't know if this is just for him to remember or if he's trying to praise God at this moment, but he does do this. He says, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. What David's doing here is he is recalling the character of God that he had already come to know as he had spent time with God. David understood that God's character was comprised of mercy. David had spent time with God. David knew who God was. And by having that intimate relationship, knowing how God viewed sin and how God viewed David, David was able to not just ask God to do something for him, but was able to rely on God's nature and God's character as he made those requests. And my question to you today is, do you know God? And if you're a Christian right now, then I'm assuming that you would say, yes, I do know who God is. I've been a Christian for this many years or whatever. I read the Bible this often. What I'm asking is, do you actually know God? Have you gone through life with God? Have you seen him move in your life? Have you taken his word and implanted it into your brain to say, okay, I've always thought of maybe God this way, but because of his word, I'm going to believe that he is who he says he is? Have you gotten to know him as a friend? Have you gotten to know him as a father? Have you gotten to know him as the Lord of your life? My prayer is that you have, and that when you're confessing your sins to God, you're not doing it from a place of just fear and trembling like, God's going to squash me and kill me because of what I just did, or he's going to neglect me and abandon me, but that you would know him in such a way that you'd be able to confess knowing that there's a loving father on the other end of your prayer, that there's a God who sees you and still loves you. David had this understanding that God would listen to him and that God would have mercy on him. But David also understood something very significant about God's character, and that was that God would not overlook David's transgressions. Yes, David could approach God. Yes, God would respond to David. There would be mercy that's poured out on David. But David had to confess because he knew that God was just not going to have sin undealt with in David's life. David recognized that his sin was not compatible with God's holiness. God's purity. 
And so he had to appeal to his mercy. God would not just skim over his sin. God needs to deal with it. And so David gets on the front of it and just says, look, I know you need to deal with it. Please just have mercy on me as you deal with it because you are a loving God. You're abundant in mercy. Now, before we go any further, let's just talk about sin for a moment. Everybody's favorite topic. Um, I think it's important to talk about sin for a moment and just kind of define what it is because I know for me in my life, sin is just a big junk drawer word for just wrongdoing. And in one sense, it kind of is. And we'll talk about that here in a moment. But there are a few different versions of sin that are laid out in Scripture that are helpful for us to know because as we understand what kind of sin we're dealing with, we're able to make our confession much more pointed and we're actually able to understand what's really going on inside of us and be able to confess that to God. So let's just talk about the word sin for a moment. We're all familiar with that word. Sin comes from the Hebrew word chata and in the di- in a dictionary, in Strong's Hebrew dictionary, this word is basically defined as an offense. Um, this word was used, sin was used in the book of Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, and this kind of sin can both be intentional or unintentional. Intentional sins we oftentimes refer to as sins of commission, something that we did willingly, or sins of omission, things that we didn't really know we were doing, but, but we still did it and they have to be dealt with. So sin is any thought, word, or action that is disobedient to the will of God. There's so many different kinds of sins that we can participate in. Mankind has been very creative in how we go about sin. And the sins we're about to talk about here in a moment all go into this word, sin. But David talks about two different kinds of sins um, here in this passage that we just gotta define so we understand it a bit more clearly. But one is the sin of iniquity. Iniquity is a word that comes from the Hebrew word, awan. And this word is first used in Genesis chapter 15. And the dictionary defines this as perversity. Another way that we can say this is a moral type of evil. It's the type of sin that's related to the inner character of who we are. This is the stuff that when we talk about it, it gets really painful because it's not just something we can just change on the exterior. It's stuff that's kind of baked into who we are. It's stuff that can only be removed as God's grace gets into our lives and removes it from us and puts in the character of Jesus into our lives. This is moral uncleanliness. Um, It's oftentimes demonstrated with the intentional twisting or defiance of God's standard. It's just rebellion. It's, It's coming from the heart to God. Oftentimes, iniquity is not even seen, but it's just dealt with um, or it's, it's acted upon inside our hearts. And so David's going to talk about iniquity um, in this psalm. But he also talks about another version of sin, which is transgression. And this word comes from the Hebrew word pesha. And basically, this is the same kind of thing as trespassing. It's crossing the line. It's going one step too far. It's TMI. It's too much information. It is just, oh, I wish I could just get that word back. I wish I could get that sentence back. That's transgression. It's that thing you shouldn't have done because it steps over into somebody else's um, life. It offends them. It goes against who they are. This is an intrusion, infringement on another person or their property. It's exceeding the bounds or limits towards another person. It's basically a willful violation of a standard or a principle or a law or a duty. And the difficult thing about transgressions is that the transgressor understands ahead of time they're not supposed to do this, but they do it anyways. Sure, there can be um, the sin of omission where you don't totally know what you're doing in the moment, but that it is a transgression. But oftentimes what happens is that someone knows, hey, I shouldn't get the cookie from the cookie jar, and they do it anyways. That's the sin of 
transgression. So what we see here in this, these first couple of verses is that David is confessing to the sin of transgression. He sees that he did a wrong thing by sleeping with Bathsheba, who was a married woman. He knew that he was wrong in sending Uriah um, to the front lines to be killed. He recognized that he had adultery and murder on his hands. He says, God, I want you to blot out my transgressions. I can't deal with them myself. So in summary, David confessed to the depravity of his heart. He's not trying to take any shortcuts here to um, eliminate the fact that he had done something wrong. He is just straight up with his sin. He says, God, I just, I blew it. I did a bad, wrong thing. David confessed to the intentional act against God, against Bathsheba, and against Uriah, confessing that he had stepped over the line and could not step back over the line um, in his heart. So he, he confessed that intentional will of his body, his mind, and his soul against God and against these people. David is also willing to confess what needed to be exposed so that God could deal with his heart. I don't know about you, but confessing to a transgression is just hard to do. It's hard to do because we, I, I, know, I have a lot of pride that I got to deal with. I don't like recognizing that I've done something wrong. I don't like recognizing that there's something wrong with my heart because that means that God's got to do some deep work inside of me to uproot all that bad, evil, capacity for evil inside of me. But David here, I just love his heart because he just says, look, I got to expose this to the light. I need God to deal with my heart. I do not want to do this kind of sin ever again. And his self-awareness, David's self-awareness is just so beautiful here that he would understand what he had done, that it was wrong, and he would confess it to God. This is a beautiful kind of beginning of his confessional type of prayer. Again, I just want to ask you the question, when you fail, do you know who God is? Do you know the God of love that is willing to go through the motions of redemption with you? Do you know that he cares about you? Do you know that your transgression, your iniquity, your sin is a stumbling block, but it is not a dead end? Do you know that God can take you through what you've done and can lead you into redemption? Sure, there's consequences. Sure, there's things that you have to live with for maybe the rest of your life. But do you know that God wants to restore joy to you? Do you know that he wants to help you to not do that thing to another person ever again? When we talk about God being with you and for you, this is what we're talking about, that he is with you through thick and thin. He loves you and is just looking for you to come and confess and give this all to him. The second thing that I want you to see about prayers of confession is that they allow God to search our motives. Let's check out verse two here from David. David says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Check this out. When God searches your motives, he might show you that your offenses come from a deeper character issue. That was the case with David here. As he confessed his sin, he went from recognizing the transgression that he had committed to seeing that, man, this isn't just an exterior thing that's got to be dealt with only. Yes, it does have to be dealt with. But there's iniquity inside of my heart that is prompting me to do these sins. I think what he's trying to communicate here is that this kind of sin wasn't just a one-off kind of thing. It wasn't just a heat of the moment kind of decision, although it was, but underneath the surface, it revealed that there was some real deep capacity for evil inside David's heart. And so rather than just asking for forgiveness from the sin, he says, God, I want you to get deeper. I want you just to remove thoroughly the iniquity inside my heart. Cleanse me from my sins. David just recognized that his actions didn't come from nowhere, but they came from his own nature as a man. And we'll dive into this here a bit more um, in the upcoming verses. 
But what we also see from this is that when God searches our motives, he might confirm the sin that we're already aware of. And what you see here in this passage is that God doesn't jump in. He doesn't jump in and just say, oh, David, just stop the prayer right there, man. Like, you've been forgiven. Like, you don't need to go any further with this confession. No, God just lets him talk it out. God lets him work it out verbally right before him. He's like, David, I know you sinned. I know that you transgressed these people. And I know that it's, a, it's an issue of the heart that we're dealing with here. So you can continue to confess on because we need to get to the root of this real problem inside of you. David recognized that his sins were in front of him. They were not behind him. And the only way that could be really dealt with was by God reaching in and truly blotting out, wiping away the sins that were in front of him. David just recognized that he had great capacity for sin in his future because of his iniquity, and he didn't want to go on without God transforming his life. I love this from David. He saw the sin. He saw that he still had some years left to live. He still had a kingdom to rule. He said, man, I don't want to give into this kind of sin ever again in the future. I want to be a man of integrity. I want to be a man that you can rely on. I want to be a man who's stable, who is right in mind and right in action. I want to live righteously with my God. I want to live justly with my God. And he sees here that the only way for that transformation to happen was through confession and remembering who God was and allowing God to search his heart and to change him from the inside out. Now this question I'm about to ask you is a bit of a searching question. I'm not trying to put guilt on you or myself by asking this, but just between me and you, we have to think about this question. Do you recognize the great capacity that you have for sin in your life? You may have been a Christian for a long time. You may have been, you may have overcome that addiction for a lot of years. You may have not looked at that thing, partaken of that, uh, that action for a long time, but do you know that it could come up again? Do you know that temptation, like scripture says, is right at the door, it's just knocking. It's just waiting for you to answer. Do you know that it's close and that the only way to continue to move through temptation is by surrendering ourselves to the power of the Spirit, by living in obedience to Christ? Without Jesus, our capacity for sin is far greater than we could ever possibly imagine. There are things that I've done in my life that when I look back on them, I can't believe that I would have the capacity to do that. I can't believe that I would let that sin slide over that easily. I can't believe that I would make that a habit, make that a choice I continually do. And I'm not going to share all that here right now. It probably isn't the right venue for doing that. But if you ever want to talk one-to-one about some of those things, I'd be happy to share them with you. But what I'm just trying to say is that, man, our capacity for sin, it is big and large. I'm not trying to scare you or, again, put a trip on you. All I'm trying to say is, do you understand that? And upon understanding that, are you willing to offer to God your heart from a place of humility rather than pride? Oftentimes what happens in my heart is that, you know, maybe I've conquered a sin by the power of the Spirit and I start getting a little too confident that maybe I overcame that myself. And by becoming prideful and arrogant, I'm much more susceptible to falling into that sin again because I'm not living by the way of the Spirit anymore. I'm living by the power of Riley. And that power is limited. Let me tell you, are you willing to confess your sin and allow God to search your heart and pull out those desires from you? Are you willing to let go of your pride and let God get in? By recognizing that on the front end, or even just today, I don't know what you've done in the past, but recognizing that today there's great capacity by serving an even greater God, man, you're setting yourself up for a life where 
by obedience and following Christ and be empowered by His Spirit, by daily surrender, you can live peaceably with God. You can live peaceably with your neighbor. And again, it's not just because of what we can do or just the amount of self-discipline we have, but it's by the resurrection power that has now brought us back to life in Christ. Have you recognized that capacity for evil? Have you surrendered it to God? David did it, and he saw great dividends from that. Number three, prayers of confession identify the object of our wrongdoing. Check out what David says here in verse four. He says, against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Here's what I want us to see. David understood that among the people who were decimated in his path, the true object of his rebellion was actually God himself. Yes, he did evil against Bathsheba. Yes, he did evil against Uriah. Yes, he did evil against his own children and his own wives and his own people, his own body. But underneath all of that was a a deep rebellion against God and his law. David knew that he was never permitted to do what he did. The acts of his sin affected the people around him, but it revealed that, man, this man was rebellious in nature. And David understood this. He said, look, God, honestly, it's against you first that I have sinned. I've done evil in your sight. But, God, but David also knew, just kind of in addition to that thought, that God was not to blame for his wrongdoing. David saw that he had to take full ownership of his decisions and his sin. He, see, he says here that, God, I recognize that I was the one who sinned. You are justified in your words. You are justified in your judgment. I'm the one who did wrong here. This is amazing to me because oftentimes what happens in my life and in the past is that when I sin, I might even think about it, but I'll be like, God, you made me this way. Like, why is this the thorn in my side that I have to sin this way and be drawn to this and say these things and do these things? Like, why couldn't you have made me without that defect? And oftentimes what that looks like in my life is just straight up rebellion, straight up mistrust to God. What I love here is that David just understood. There was, there was no blaming. There's no victim card being played. David just saw, look, God, I have done wrong against you. You have never done wrong against me. Let's just make that clear that this thing that has happened, it has been willfully from me, and I apologize. I want to repent from it. I love that because he just affirms the goodness of God. He affirms that doctrine that we believe that God is holy, that he is pure, that he is righteous, that he has never once sinned. And David here, just by recognizing that he was the one who sinned and that God was the object of his sin and that God could never do sin against him, really demonstrated that in his life. It's a beautiful element of confession. Let's keep moving along. I told you we got eight things here um, to these prayers of confession, so we're going to speed it up here now. Prayers of confession are anchored in creation. Let's see what he says here in verse 5. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. That was a big kind of pairing of verses here, but when we go back to verse 5, what we see is that David connected his sinful actions back to the law of depravity. This law of depravity shows us that we have been born, you and me, we've been born into this world that is now dominated by sin. The prince of darkness has rule over our world. Jesus obviously is the king over Satan, over that darkness. And God's power is breaking through the darkness in our lives as we give our lives to Jesus, as Jesus resurrects us 
from that death, that sin that has overrun us. There is this battle that is going on between the darkness and the light. But we see here is that David recognizes that from birth, he was born into depravity. Not that his mom, or that he was conceived from an evil act or anything. This life was ordained by God. God had made him, crafted him in his mother's womb, as we read in um, scripture later. But we see here is that David just recognizes that, look, I was just born into this. This is just who I am. Apart from God's goodness, I am just, I have the capacity to sin. I just am a sinner. Um, and in that, he just recognizes that, man, God is good. I love what Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon says about uh, this idea of being born into depravity. He says, it is a wicked resting of scripture to deny that original sin and natural depravity are here taught. Surely men who cavil at this doctrine have need to be taught of the Holy Spirit what be the first principles of faith. What Spurgeon is saying here is that if you deny that what David is saying here is anything other than that uh, we have been born into sin, then we're missing the whole point. David is trying to communicate that we have been born into a sinful, evil world and that we need to be rescued by the hand of God. So David here is just recognizing that from creation, I mean, he's dating it back to his birth, but we can take that back to the beginning of scripture that we've been born into this world after the fall that is just riddled with sin. But David also believed that moral cleansing was only possible through God's grace and through God's mercy. Yes, he had been born into a sinful world, but he did believe that moral cleansing was possible, that there could be healing of the heart. It just had to come from God. It could not be self-discipline. It could not be just doing all the right acts. It could not be just offering all the right sacrifices. Those things are good, but to remove the dirt, to wash away the stains, the blood of Jesus had to enter in and wipe the slate clean. And even before knowing who Jesus was, who the Messiah would be, David just recognized that, man, it had to be from the hand of God, from God's mind, his plan, and from his actions. So David saw here that cleansing was only possible through God, that his sin was anchored in creation but could be remedied through God's goodness. Number five, prayers of confession involve petitions. Verse nine says, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Reading that, I can't help but think of that old Maranatha song that stems straight from these verses. I love that song so much. Maybe that melody's in your head too. But we see here is that David's prayers involved a repetition of petitions. What we see here in this little coupling of verses, verses 9 through 12, is that David doesn't just make one petition. He makes two. He makes three. He makes four. He makes a number of them. And I don't think here that what David is trying to do is just wallow in his sin. Because what we've seen up to this point is that he's not overcome with sin. Rather, he recognizes it and offers it to God for God's cleansing um, in his life. But it does seem that David is trying to make petitions on all sides of the sin. He is trying to ask God to remove sin, to not leave him, to make him clean, um, to restore joy because of what he had done. And there's just this repetition of petitions, but it's not, it doesn't seem here at least that he's just saying it over and over again to build more and more a case for God to forgive him. It just seems that he's trying to ask God to restore and redeem and to purify and to cleanse. He's making requests 
to God. Oftentimes in our lives, I, I can't speak for you, but I know for myself, I can just make a simple prayer of saying, God, forgive me for doing this. Forgive me for thinking this. Forgive me for going about this in this kind of way. And what I'm seeing here is that not, I mean, David does do that, but he's also trying to ask God just to restore what has been broken because of his sin. And that involves a lot of different kinds of petitions. So prayer of confession involves those kinds of requests. Number six, prayers of confession result in worship. I love this one. Verses 13 through 15 say, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. David's expectation of God's healing compelled him to see how he could help other rebels turn back to God. What we see here is that David knew that God would bring mercy, God would bring grace, God would bring healing. And he says, when you bring that healing, when you blot out that sin, what I want to do as a response is I want to worship you by leading other people like me to confess and repent before you. Now, this is a super cool part of the prayer because what this does in David's heart is it turns him away from just being an inward thinker and it kind of propels him outside of himself into future opportunities with God, understanding that God had a plan and a purpose, not just for him, but for the people that David would touch in the future. And when our hearts can be turned in confession towards this future that God has for us, this is when big prayers start to take place. Because what happens in this moment is your sin goes from just being about you and it goes towards how can I help others? And when we think about the great commission of Jesus, when he says, go out and make disciples, baptize, help people, teach them, this kind of part of the prayer takes us into that component of Jesus' great mission and purpose for our lives, and that is to make disciples who make disciples. So what we're seeing here is that God is redeeming the pain that David experienced and using it to potentially bless people in the future. Now when I say this, I don't want you to think that I'm just ignoring what David did against Uriah and against Bathsheba. David here is not, I don't think, becoming opportunistic and just trying to use his past just for the future and just kind of leaving Bathsheba and his decisions to the side. We've seen here that he's very aware of those things and he's trying to make confession for those. Um, but what we do see is that in the mix of coming to grips with his sin and what he needs forgiveness for, he's also very aware of God's plan for the future. And I hope you know that when God's healing touch comes into our lives, God will oftentimes prompt us to bring that healing touch into other people's lives. And I would just ask you this question, what has God touched in your life? How has God healed you? How has God ministered to you? What pain from the past, whether that's just from today or years past, has God come into your life and brought healing from? Oftentimes, that, that particular point of healing, that particular part of pain in your life could be the, it, the, the deciding factor for where you pour into other people's lives in the future. For instance, I grew up without a father. My dad passed away when I was really young, and I've always had a heart for young men who grew up without fathers. I, I find myself wanting to be a good brother, wanting to almost father other young men. That is a pain area for me. I've seen healing in my life as I've now become a dad and understood that God is my father. It's been a, it's been a wild journey of um, going from insecurity to confidence, from feeling abandoned to, to feeling adopted, the whole thing, right? In that 
place of healing in my life, I have found a way to connect with other young men and other young people and even older men and older people who are still wrestling with their father wounds. So what is it for you? What is something that has happened to you that you have seen some healing in that God might want to use for ministry in the future? You might be going through a pain right now that has lasted for years and you haven't really seen much healing in your life. Maybe this kind of prayer is totally brand new to you of confession, being vulnerable with God, and you've seen in your life that, man, maybe you don't feel like you can be vulnerable with God because of the pain in your past. And maybe that pain has turned to bitterness. I'd encourage you that God wants to bring healing into your life. He wants to bring comfort and support. Those things that have happened to you, that is now a part of your story. That is a part of your history. That cannot be changed anymore. This is the reality of living in this broken world that sin occurs, pain happens, scars last. But what happens from our lives as a result of those things can be determined by God's plan for your life. Will you be willing to open up your heart to how God might want to use you to help others because of what has happened to you and the healing that he has, has put into your life? Will you step out in faith and vulnerability and share your story, share your life, invite others into what you've experienced so that you can be a blessing to them? This is something that God has made you for, brother and sister. He loves you and wants to use you for his glory and for the blessing of other people. Moving right along, seventh thing here. Prayers of confession come from a place of brokenness. David said in verse 16, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. This is one of the verses from this prayer that really kind of got my brain churning about sharing this passage with you in light of what Nate has been talking about over the past few weeks in the book of Leviticus. Because what David talks about here is sacrifices, the things that we're talking about in Leviticus. And what David reveals to us here is something so simple but so profound when it comes to the people of Israel and what they would sacrifice to God and what God was really looking for as the people of Israel made those offerings and those sacrifices. And that's this. God was looking for a broken heart in their confession and in their sacrifice. The temptation for the Israelites was when they had sinned to get the, the fattest calf, to get the best dove, to get the, the best sacrifice they could offer to prove to God that they were really sorry for what they had done. And it was good to offer the best to God. But what God was really looking for beyond or maybe right below the sacrifice was, is this person really broken before me? I think of that song we sing sometimes, break my heart for what breaks yours. It's a scary prayer to say, but I believe that is what is happening here. David is allowing his heart to be broken for the things that break God's heart. And he is allowing himself to be broken before God and allow his brokenness to be the sacrifice on the altar for God himself. It can feel like kind of like a passive thing to just say, man, I just, I'm broken for my sin. And this is like all I can give to God is just like, just my space. Just, just these open hands. That's like all I can just give to God right now because I am weak. I am broken. I, I am wrong. And you may feel like that is not an, an, a worthy sacrifice to Jesus. But let me tell you that that thought is a lie from the pit of hell. What God is looking for is a broken, contrite heart. God will not deny the broken heart, the heart that is broken over sin. God, scripture tells us 
This is from Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mount, that God is close to the brokenhearted. Are you brokenhearted over your sin? Or has your sin become so callous? Has your heart become so calloused because of your sin that you don't even see your sin as sin anymore? Do you feel like you're distant from God? You're continuing in sin, and you feel like there's no way to really bridge that gap between you and God's heart anymore. This is the key to unlock that door. God is looking to reveal to you the brokenness inside your heart. He is looking to show you the depravity of sin. Not to put a trip on you, but to cause your heart to come and surrender to God. It's in this moment of brokenness and vulnerability and feeling shattered that God says, this is a holy moment. This is where I want to be. God is with us in that brokenness. But oftentimes we just fly by sin. We don't want to confess because it's embarrassing or it hurts our pride. We feel like it makes us miss opportunities. And sometimes that is the case. But let me ask you, would you rather make a decision right now to be vulnerable before God and experience the life that comes as you sacrifice yourself, offer that brokenness to Him? Or do you want to continue to put on a nice show for people and feel disconnected from God forever? That's something only you can decide. But God is offering to you this, this beautiful connection, this, this moment where heaven touches earth, through our confession of brokenness. Jesus reaffirms that this, this brokenness of heart, this change of heart is the greatest um, sacrifice when he talked to one of the scribes in the book of Mark. In Mark chapter 12, verse 32, we read this interaction between a scribe and Jesus. And the scribes, he talks to Jesus and he says, you're right, teacher. You have truly said that he, God, is one and there's no other besides him. And to love God with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one neighbor, one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Check this out. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, Jesus said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. What we see here is that the truest sacrifice we can offer, the greatest demonstration of obedience and love for God is a change of heart. And that change of heart looks like a straight up broken heart because of sin. It looks like a heart that just like a child follows their parent, so would this broken person follow the way of Jesus. I hope what you're seeing is that God's just looking for honesty. He's just looking for humility. Will you be willing to make the difficult decisions to be humble? In Philippians chapter 2, we read that Jesus descended the ladder of humility in order to be that sacrifice for the whole world. For you may feel like you're descending a ladder or a staircase, having to make all these decisions to become humble and vulnerable before God. But let me tell you that this is the great, these are the greatest steps you're ever going to take because with them comes the presence of God. Does your heart break over sin? I encourage you to allow God to search your heart so He can reveal those areas of sin and so you can bring confession as soon as possible to Him. And just a quick word about confession. You know, there's one, it's one thing to confess between you and God, it's a whole nother thing to confess between you and God and you and another person. I have to be honest, I haven't been the greatest at this um, in the past. In my adult years, it's been kind of hard for me to find close, trusted friends I can really be vulnerable and honest with. I've done the life group thing. I've had different friends come in and out. But the thing about living here in Monterey, maybe you've experienced this, is that your friends, they kind of come and they go a lot of times. We live in a transient place. Quick plug for life groups, join a life group. 
uh, you can really find that place for confession um, at those groups. But I know for me, I, I've had seasons where I can confess sin to other people and seasons where I don't feel like I have that person. And uh, it's just so funny, this past weekend, I actually had a DTR conversation with a good close male friend of mine. Maybe you're familiar with the term DTR. All it means is determine the relationship. And basically all we did is we got some coffee and I didn't know this was gonna happen, but we decided as we were having coffee that we need to have a conversation about our friendship. What were the boundaries of our friendship and what was the intention for our friendship? And what we decided was that me and this guy, we were gonna be there for each other through thick and thin while we live in Monterey that we would text each other regularly, we would call and check in on each other regularly, that we would be men who care about each other. And at the heart of it, that we'd be men who can confess to each other our sins and our vulnerabilities in hopes that God would just continue to build us up as strong men for the kingdom, for our families, for our church. And so, you know, that just happened this weekend, a few days ago. And I am so looking forward to jumping into this very intentional, confessional, communal kind of friendship with this guy because I know that as hard as it is to confess sin, I just know that God is gonna work through all those moments of confession for God's glory. So I'd encourage you, maybe you need to have that kind of conversation with one of your friends, maybe in life group or in another kind of way altogether, but God will honor that as you do it. Okay, last thing. I'm going real long here. This is a long passage. Prayers of confession rest in God's sovereignty. Verse 18 says, Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. Here's what happened. David recognized that the burden of his responsibilities and future rested on God's plan for his life. David just recognized that, look, God is over it all. He is in it all, and he's working through it all. God is sovereign. He is, he is allowing his plan to take place in his own time, in his own way. I am just a servant to God. And so this place, Zion, Israel, the kingdom of God, this people, will be taken care of by God. So David's just saying, please God, just do good to your people. These people I'm, I've been given stewardship to you know, see over, like, look, I'm just, a, I'm just a man, I'm broken, I'm sinful, I need your help beyond my capacity. Can you just do your thing with your people? Build up the walls of Jerusalem, secure them from sin. And in your good leadership, if you are leading them, God, then I know that these people are going to give sacrifices with the right heart, with brokenness of heart, and be submissive to you. So David recognized God's sovereignty over these people, but he's also just kind of pleading with God to go before him and to protect these people in ways that David could not protect them. So here's all I want you to see here is that through David's prayer, through this moment of giving his life to God, through humility and vulnerability, we see that David is appealing to God's mercy and his grace, that David is recognizing his own faults and his own sins. And all of this is a foreshadow to what you and I get to experience today, and that is the saving work and redemption of Jesus Christ in our lives because Jesus was the one who ultimately took on the brokenness of mankind into his body and into his life. He offered himself on that cross for us as the great sacrifice. And now through faith, we are regenerated as scripture tells us because the spirit has entered inside of us and transformed us, caused us to be born again, to live into this beautiful hope that God has put in front of us. And that is living a life of purpose, and joy and confidence in Jesus. So brothers and sisters, I hope that you go forward today in that confidence that God loves you, He is with you, that this type of confessional prayer is not only just for God, but it's really for you to be able to experience freedom in Christ. And I pray that God 
takes you deeper and deeper into understanding your sins so that you can dive even deeper and deeper into confession, which leads deeper and deeper into intimacy with God. Church, I love you, praying for you. Have a great rest of your day. We'll see you next Tuesday. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.